Welcome to the Banker Midweek, your weekly look at what the industry is talking about, offering information bankers like you need to know. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Banker Midweek. This week, your editors are, as always, myself, Liz Lumley, and we are joined by our reporter, Davide Montnier. Montnier? Yeah, I'm so bad with the pronunciations. Please send me hate mail. Um, And we are also joined by a very special guest who needs no introduction, Dr. Ruth Wandahoffer. Hello, Ruth. Hello, Liz. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much. And you're also one of our esteemed judges for our Transaction Banking Awards, which were awarded at Sarbos last month. So thank you so much. You're part of the banker family. (laughs) So we're going to start off um, with a story. Now, everyone knows, uh, our listeners know, that the Banker Midweek is our weekly discussion of stories live on the Banker site and newsy bits that will influence future stories. Um, And you know what? Rules are meant to be broken because we control them. So we're not actually going to start off with a story that is on the banker yet, but it will influence influence future stories. And we're looking at uh, crypto and cri- specifically crypto marketing. So um, since the 8th of October this year, firms wishing to promote cryptocurrencies in the UK must by law be authorized or registered by the FCA or have their marketing approved by an authorized firm. So since that has been... Um, been the law in the country. Uh, the FCA have issued 146 alerts about crypto asset promotions on the first day of the new regime. The FCA expect businesses, including social media platforms, app stores, search engines, domain name uh, registers, payments firms, to consider the alerts we have issued and play their part in protecting UK consumers from illegal promotions. And the FCA also call on consumers to check the warning list before making any investments into crypto. Now I know I know you're you're a crypto girl, Ruth. You're a you're a, a well well versed in this in this subject. What do you think of the uh, 146 alerts in sort of the first the first week of these new FCA rules? Well first of all I'm not surprised and I think talking about crypto, I mean this is a very complex and evolving and still nascent market with a lot of scams and issues we've seen through through the decade almost. Um, so I'm not at all surprised, but as a, as a consumer in the UK, first of all, I'd like to applaud the FCA for doing this because, I mean, arguably it could have been done ages ago, but given that this market is so uh, tricky to navigate as somebody who is not a technical expert, who's not maybe someone with enough money to gamble away, um, and given the sort of I guess, magnet around social media and some of the messaging that we've seen throughout the years, how exciting and amazing it is to to make a fortune out mm. of nothing. Yeah. Of course, the reality, you know, emperor's new clothes, right? The reality is different, but it has lulled quite a number of consumers into this. So it's an incredibly important initiative. And as a consumer myself, I actually went into the warning list, which, as would you believe it, has 12,230 entries altogether so this is a very important warning list that doesn't only of course cover the crypto marketing piece that we just have added now but it covers all sorts of funny dodgy financial services pretend companies that are floating around in the uk and as we know from you know how companies house is currently managed and how this hopefully will improve over time 
that it's incredibly easy as a 15-year-old to set up 70 fraudulent companies over a weekend across the country. So I'm not at all surprised. And I think it's a very important navigation tool for anybody who feels that they might have purchased the wrong type of financial product online because somebody made a big splash around it. So 12,230 listed entries with 146 so far in the crypto space. I'm pretty sure there will be more. And I think it's a very important exercise, which I'm also sure other markets will see the benefit and copy it. Yeah. I mean, I always said it's kind of that get rich quick marketing that I, I, it always struck me as very, I kind of got very sort of, um, I think I, I used uh, some swear words on a, on another someone else's podcast a while back and they had to bleep me about, about some of this. It makes me a bit angry. I mean, but the FCA does say we also continue to remind people that purchasing crypto assets remains high risk and that they should be prepared to lose all their money. I mean, fair enough, people are adults and they should be allowed to invest their money when they want to. But there was this there was this kind of frenzy a, a couple of years ago about about this, you know, making money from nothing that I think was very targeted at certain sections of the population, which I found um, rather distasteful <laughs> personally. In the old world, we called them charlatans, didn't we? Mm, yep. <laughs> yeah, snake oil salesmen. Anyway, what do you think, Davide? So I actually, I agree. I find it very interesting that the FCA has decided to implement this new crypto marketing regime right now. Um, and as I agree that perhaps it should have, I mean, because we, we have seen that the crypto market has expanded exponentially over the past few years. Uh, so I think it's very good to have regulations, uh, which it, it's also, it's a very good sign because it means that um, they... Uh, <laughs> no, it is a good sign. It is. I, I agree with you that you know the, the FCA is is here to protect consumers. You know, so they have they have this warning list, and so this is so if you kind of think, oh, you know what, I'm I'm going to invest in this high risk, which crypto assets are. Check the warning list. Oh, this one, this is a, a pretty good company to go to, or this one is a better one too. So it, yeah, it's all about information and prote and protecting the consumer. Exactly, and I, I and I think that especially in times of you know economic uncertainty like we are experiencing right now with inflation um i've seen uh, you know uh, the crypto market is becoming more and more appealing mm. uh, because of that and the cost I, of living crisis i think yeah that's exactly. what i mean targeted at people who might be vulnerable right at the moment that's that's exactly. the thing that bothers me yes uh, so i think that for this exact reason uh, you know people should be made aware of the risks because of course like you know it's a very like uh, risky market to get into especially if you don't have a broad knowledge of the sector um or if I, if you're kind of sort of a, of a newbie so uh, it's very good to have a reference point from where people mm. can start yeah a long time ago uh, an, uh, a, a, an asset manager told me the best thing to do is to put your money in a long-term fund and just walk away from it and just let it sit there and grow <laughs> so there's no there's no quick fixes so now we are heading yes we are we're heading to the banker site where we feel nice and warm and cozy. And we're talking about a story that you wrote, Davide, which is um, the headline is Hopes High that the UK will remain a leading financial hub. And this is about a survey of uh, a number of financial services and, um, and leaders uh, looking at, um, so this is from uh, Lloyd's Banking Group, uh, looking at their views on AI and talent retention. And a lot of the, it was a rather... Um, a hopeful survey about uh, where we're going um, as an as an industry in the market. So since this was your story, Davide, I'm gonna I'm gonna ask you for the first comment on it. 
No, exactly. I, I had the pleasure to talk with Lisa Francis, which is the managing editor uh, institutional coverage at Lloyd's. And I think from, from, what, from what I've heard from her and also what, of course, I read in the report is that uh, it paints a very positive, a, a, a quite positive picture of the, um, you know, the, the state of the economy uh, that uh, the UK, because we, we, we keep getting like, uh, I feel like we keep getting very grim. Doom and gloom. Yeah. Doom and gloom. <laughs> grim predicaments, or, uh, uh, like uh, predictions on, you know, what the, the future of state of the economy is going to be. So it was very kind of like sort of refreshing to see that uh, the majority of the firms that were like uh, uh, inter that were inter within the financial sector that were interviewed for the for the survey that they thought that um you know the UK is is going to perform better than what um was expected and especially in the financial sector is expected to grow in spite of inflation and uh, they also pointed at the importance, of course, that we uh, of AI and um, talent reten talent retention uh, within the financial sector. They, they were Miss um, uh, Francis like uh, highlighted those two especially as the as the pillars of a healthy uh, financial sector. And for me, especially, like I find it very uh, you know I always um, I I'm very. Uh, I feel uh, there's a lot of information out there about AI and how it's going to revolutionize the market. And there's always talks about how that's going to um, impact, of course, like retention of talent and like is going to make uh, a lot of a lot of positions perhaps like redundant. So um, it was very interesting talking to her and see that in spite of, you know, worries that are real worries that a lot of people have out there, uh, financial institutions are still adamant that um, talent is one of the main or of the core aspects of yeah. their sphere. Trying to get that top talent to come come and work at a bank. Yeah. <laughs> so Ruth, you have a, a long history of you know working in the industry and working at banks with with payments and innovation. Are you do you, do you see a, a, a ho is it, we're entering a hopeful time for the industry or what? What do you think? Yeah, I would maybe sort of look at it from the perspective of the city of London, which is of course the big hub for financial services globally, really. Um, and it is indeed nice to see that there is hope and there is belief uh, to continue investments um, in this space. I completely resonate with the findings around more than 50% having concerns around attracting talent, which of course has ever since Brexit been a real issue, but mm. it's also more of a global issue generally. I agree with you, Liz, in terms of, you know, the banking industry being maybe not the most exciting place to work if you have. No, come on, cool, come on in. The water's you know, fun. <laughs> if you have very cool global, uh, you know, techs or fintechs to work with. But at the same time, of course, the fintech winter has, has sort of put a bumper on those um, sort of markets as well. So I think it is it is hopeful. I would like to see um, a lot more change in, in the UK economy generally. And what I think we have now in front of us with the financial services markets bill with the data protection digital information bill and the economic crime and corporate transparency bill is real opportunity to create a digital economy in the uk and to really look at what needs fixing i mean just to give you um, an example broadband is not available throughout the country mm -hmm. uh, and it's not even available in parts of the city of london itself mm -hmm. if we don't fix some of those infrastructural and availability issues we have difficulty moving our markets, whether that's finance or any other part of the industry, 
into the digital space, you know. And the other thing is, of course, that with years of open banking experience, we're actually now looking at smart data and allowing smart data to travel across safe digital rails that we can take from open banking and implement into different parts of the economy, whether it's the health sector, the education sector, the industrials, and creating that sort of data economy, particularly with consent-based sharing of data and secure data exchange, is really something that we should focus on. So I think there's a lot that the City of London and the UK economy can do themselves to actually up their game and make themselves more attractive to workforce from around the world, but equally really leveraging the data highway and the analytics into that next space, because we do have too many vulnerabilities from a cybersecurity perspective. We have whole rafts of the industry that are still paper-based and manual. And I think even starting with having broadband coverage, at least in the financial hub of the world, would be, in my view, a good suggestion. So it's something <laughs> that I'm working on with the City of London to create what I call ubiquitech you know, ubiquitous technology to really create a digital economy. So I think it's a great start, but we, we shouldn't lose focus. We have quite a way to go. Yeah, no, I agree. B building that building that infrastructure and building that foundation is the, the surest and most sustainable way to get to uh, all the cool stuff that we want to play around with for, for in the future. So I wanted to move on to, we all know that us at the Banker travel around the world uh, meeting meeting um, uh, financial leaders. And so this week is the uh, annual meeting of the World Bank and the IMF. And our uh, Africa and Middle East editor, John Everington, and our European editor, Anita Hauser, are both there representing the banker. Um, and it's uh, interesting because uh, Mar this was uh, planned for Marrakesh uh, long before they had their recent uh, earthquake. Uh, in Morocco, and so it, it was uh, up in the air whether they were going to go ahead with the IMF meeting, but it is now going ahead. Um, so John Everington uh, interviewed Morocco's Minister of Economy and Finance prior to the meeting, and she talked a little bit about um, how the country is doing in the in the wake of the earthquake that they had just just this September. Um, and in it, she says the impact of the Al Hazal earthquake on the Moroccan economy should be very limited due to the very low contribution of the disaster areas to national value creation. Um, she also points to a $12 billion uh, program for reconstruction and general upgrading, which was launched by the King of Morocco to strengthen uh, the integrated socioeconomic development of the entire region. Um, so it, it, is, it is interesting. It's always, you know, there's lots of stuff going on in the world. Um, you never know when there'll be terrorist attacks in certain parts of the world and wars breaking out and earthquakes, but uh, the global economy seems to go on. I don't know if anyone has any, any comment about John's, John's Q&A with the finance minister before we go on. Yeah, I mean, I think the topic that, that's also, of course, lingering in the background is the World Cup, right? Mm. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Anticipation of that being um, um, hopefully boosting the economy and they still have a bit of time till 2022. Mm to create stadiums and, and boost the economy in that way. And I think Morocco is a great country because it has great infrastructure. It has a great sort of age pyramid with sufficiently young people in the economy. It's a very reliable country um, when it comes to, you know, fulfillment of service, et cetera. So I think um, this was great for them to, to win, to co-host this with Spain and Portugal. And 
I truly also believe that there's a bit of a social cohesion element across the whole Mediterranean that can come out of this. So it's not only financial and economic benefit, it's also social benefit that we can see mm. um, on the horizon. So I'm a big fan of Morocco. Yeah, no, I'm, I, I like that, that sort of so, uh, cultural and social cohesion around uh, the Mediterranean countries. It's an inter interesting region moving forward. So now we're going to a story from one of our other reporters, Amalia um, Eleger, which is uh, Standard Chartered has launched an Asian payments regulation guide to help firms avoid costly mistakes. Uh, the guide provides a snapshot of regulatory frameworks and licensing schemes for payments in eight Asian markets, but it stresses it is no substitute for legal advice. So this is um, really on when you look at some of the other things that have gone on in the region. Earlier this year, Amazon Pay India was ordered to pay a penalty of 373000 U.S. dollars to India's Reserve Bank as a result of deficiencies in compliance with local guidelines surrounding Know Your Customer and prepaid pa payment instruments. Uh, so Standard Chartered has uh, said this, um, the conversations with fintech uh, corporate clients, we understood that they face challenges in keeping abreast of the rapidly evolving regulatory payment and e-money landscape. I have to say, when dealing with global regulations, kind of understanding where they're all popping up and how they relate to each other and what you need to know is a uh, is a uh, uh, there's a armies of people that work at banks that uh, are looking out for this type of information and I'm surprised that there aren't more of these types of uh, regulatory guides coming out um, around the world and I know that you're a you have a, a history a lot of history of dealing with global regulations but uh, how useful do you think guides like this are? Yeah, I was almost taken back in time because in my days at City from 2008, I actually created a global regulatory <laughs> guide across not only payments, but the whole of transaction banking. So trade finance, cash management, securities, clearing and settlement and fund services, because it was such a complicated environment, and particularly after the financial crisis. We've seen, as we always called it, a tsunami of regulatory change. And I think you pointed right, right into the middle of the issue. We have incredible inconsistency mm. across markets. We're lucky in Europe to have more of a single jurisdiction approach. But of course, the UK is no longer part of this. Let's not talk about that part. Um, but regulatory guides are incredibly important. And I think the only challenge we see today is that regulation is changing so rapidly and there are different layers of regulatory change. So if yeah. you think about some of the Asian markets like China, that have a very um, you know, acute and rapid changes in certain ways. They sort of require information on imports and export data that relates to payments. There's some of the stuff that actually changes by province. Of course, we have our well-known US phenomenon with the different federal states. So we tend to see a multiplication in some areas of regulatory change. So I think it's great. I mean, I've done regulatory changes <laughs> myself and guides for over 10 years at City. Um, it was kind of funny because I thought, why why did I never decide to promote this with a banker at the time? It would have been such a good idea. <laughs> um, but you know, uh, it's good. It's great they're doing it. But uh, the meat, the you know, the meat in it will be to keep those up to date. Um, yeah. Which is of course why the massive disclaimers there. Keeping them up to date is challenging. I did very much like the structure. It's fairly simple, straightforward, and it has also some helpful common question sections, which actually give you a bit of an FAQ on each country and each area. So I think it's brilliant. I mean, they did it together with Ellen Aubrey as well. So let's not forget, this mm. was not just bankers writing about regulation. I mean, in the old, good old days when I covered most of Europe, US and some of Asia, because of course, in those days, early, you know, mid 2000, late 2000, 
there was not so much in Asia yet. Uh, now we have, of course, very mature markets. Uh, but in those days, I still did most of it myself, to be honest. <laughs> um, so anyway, it's it's great that they've done it. I've downloaded already. I'm going to be an avid reader of it. Um, but keeping it up to date will be the challenge. But yeah, I wanted to get market. further comment on that because I mean, so right now it covers because you mentioned like the rapid amount of change, right? So right now the report covers Hong Kong, India, South Korea, Singapore, mainland China, Taiwan, Malaysia, and Thailand, and they plan to eight. They plan to add an additional eight jurisdictions later on in the year but this report is is delivered as a pdf does that would, yeah would you yeah do, well shouldn't it be more dynamic than that of a machine readable document maybe okay. <laughs> yeah. yeah but you see um i recall i mean of course talking about fintech right in the past we already had fintech that sort of digitized rule books to automate them i think this would be a great great case study to try to automate the connectivity mm -hmm. to regulatory platforms like the you know the publications of the different regulators uh, to ingest this more automatically and i do know that these fintechs exist i think they just haven't decided to put this together as a sort of platform play in a guide i think the guide is very accessible for day-to-day -day bankers that actually need to advise their clients and have a bit of a background on what they talk about but when you truly get into the depth and want to maybe automate regulatory chains to ingest in your own compliance systems. There are fintechs out there that do it. Um, I can only encourage people to shop around on that, but I agree. Mm -hmm. I think the guide is really the sort of the surface of it, right? Mm -hmm. It's an interesting read. It gives you also some interesting flavors around developments and usability in different markets and what they're doing. But if you go deeper and really want to use it for compliance, you need a completely different uh, mm -hmm. setup. Yeah. All right. Now it's this time in the podcast where we leave the banker site. No, don't, don't go. Uh, but we're not going far. We are going to the FT. And um, for the past week in the UK, uh, we have had a drama at Metro Bank. So those of you who know, Metro Bank was a high street bank launched in the UK, and it was the first um, new bank in the country in over 100 years when it launched um, with basically a kind of a standard traditional retail bank branch model. But despite that, it was kind of the catalyst which kicked one of the, the drivers that kicked off the fintech revolution, um, especially in the UK, because it uh, caused the government to look at how they issue banking license and to try to make that a little bit easier on some of the new entrants to the market. But uh, they had some, they uh, went to raise capital this week. So they announced recently a 325 million capital raise and 600 million of debt refinancing. But the thing I wanted to kind of focus on this, you can, you know, it, we can look at uh, what went on at, at, uh, at uh, Metro Bank for a while, but they're doubling down on the branch network model, which is kind of what I wanted to focus on because there's in the, in the financial innovation space, the fintech space, there's always a bit of a debate between should we get rid of cash? No, we need to keep cash. Should we keep bank branches, ATMs, but they're disappearing from our high streets or main streets at a very rapid rate, despite the fact that so many people claim they want to keep branches, the footfall data just doesn't kind of add up most of the time and, and they, they are disappearing. So I'm just, I'm, it's in, I always thought it was interesting at the time when Metro Bank launched that they went for this traditional kind of retail uh, real estate model. Um, and they kind of, uh, they did advertise that they were kind of open later hours than other banks. Um, but they are doubling down on this, even when they had to uh, do another capital 
raise. So, Ruth, what, do, are you still, when's the last time you entered a bank branch? For me, it, for me, it was before the pandemic. Yeah, um, <laughs> last time was probably around two years ago and in a completely sort of weird situation because I, I received a check from school which school is all the schools the schools yeah <laughs> yeah and actually I didn't I completely didn't realize that you could you see it's very expensive because the bankers were complaining about how expensive the check imaging service was that mm. they had to develop which took billion cost billions <laughs> uh, of sterling um and I completely forgot about all of this because it was during COVID and there was like a day when lockdown had stopped and so I thought I've got this check now for the last year and the bank actually told me the check has expired <laughs> so so that was the last time i went into a branch um and not a very good outcome as you can see but i think it is a really tricky discussion right because because the th situation with metro bank uh, you know laudable kind of a challenger bank with branches first one after 150 years of ever any new bank on the high street you know kind of brilliant especially with the dogs and the kid-friendly um, approach. Mm. But at the mm. same time, if you look sort of under the hood, I mean, they have a cost-income ratio of 128%, which means they have a lot of cost and not very much income. Yeah. And that is quite a revolutionary large figure. So branch network is, of course, one that you can much more easily X in terms of all the costs that hang off it. So I'm not surprised that that's going to be one of the first steps. But there have to be other measures internally to improve, to automate, to have less mistakes in systems i'm sure they have lots of financial adjustments they had an accounting issue in 2019 so there seem to be some some internal wiring and system issues that can certainly be improved which then also take away the focus only from the bank branch side i mean i do think you need branches but it's almost it feels almost like what some people have done with atms in some regions you know can't we just have uh, kind of collaborative branches yeah, between banks. That, that is a movement to have that sort of collaborative. You know, that is a yeah. movement, yeah, uh, because we still need them. And if I think about, you know, I called out cyber earlier, just in terms of onboarding new customers, you know, even these days we can take voice biometrics and video and sound and all sorts of funny things, fingerprints. But what would really be the safest way of then authenticating with a different level of biometric is using iris scan. And you can only do that in person with a proper machine because it's very invasive. Mm. But if you were to do that, it would be almost impossible because then you triangulate those authentication variables that anybody but you would initiate transactions going forward. And so, of course, for that, you would need either a branch or some technical outlet for people to go to to even give that biometric authentication variable before the account can be opened. So I'm in favor of having some physical infrastructure. I think there is a partnership model that should be explored more actively. And of course, we have to think about the more vulnerable people that need help, the older generations. We are not one of the most youngest markets in the mm -hmm. UK. So, and of course, cash, I mean, you've got ATMs, but generally, you know, putting cash onto your account, if there's no ATM functionality for that, there are a number of reasons why, why having branch is a good thing. But there are also, of course, a number of reasons why you can do so much already without a branch. But I can tell you, if you have a problem with one of those digital banks, uh, which I had several times, and you have absolutely nobody to call and you're calling machines and they refer you to other bots, you know, mm. um, it can be an issue. So um, for anybody with a problem, a branch is, is a great thing to have. Mm. It's interesting you mentioned check imaging software and we, we talked a little bit about talent retention and uh, luring, luring talented people to the banking industry. A number of years ago, I was speaking to someone I know had worked at a large UK bank and I said, what are you working on? And he went, 
I'm working on check imaging software. <laughs> and I felt bad for him. Anyway, so um, according to this article, almost three-fifths of UK bank branches have closed over the past nine years. By the end of this year, the consumer group, which estimates that 5,600 will have vanished since it started tracking the data in January 2015. So, Davide, I need to ask you, when's the last time you were in a branch? Never. <laughs> Only You've oh, never been in a branch? <laughs> no, like that. I never go. I never, never visited, a, almost never visited a branch. The only time that I need to go and get some cash out is just to go to the barber because there's the only ones that they accept How cash. old are you now? 27. Okay. Yeah, I was going to say, that shows how young he is. Mm. <laughs> there we and go. the barber's doing tax evasion well. You know, that's why people want to be deceived. They're not going to get into that one. <laughs> Allegedly. Poor barber. <laughs> okay, excellent. All right, so we're going to move on to our final our final uh, story. Um, and so this, this uh, p- piqued my interest for several reasons. One, it's the Nobel Prize for Economics, and it's a woman, and she, she won it. Uh, so Claudia Go- uh, Golden, who's a Harvard professor, uh, she won the no- Nobel Prize for Economics, looking at an advanced understanding of women's labor in market outcomes. I say this as I just came back from the uh, Snowflake Data World event at the Excel Center, where I uh, moderated a panel looking at women in data to a standing-room-only audience. So it's very very interesting. Um, and then uh, some data which is supplied by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation says that um, about 26% uh, is estimated to increase global GDP by adding more women to the workforce. I don't know if anyone, I, w- I was just happy. I was just happy to see a woman win Nobel Prize for Economics. I'm happy to see women win everything and, uh, and to see actually this, this focus on, um, on, on women's labor, which often often goes uh, unpaid, <laughs> which kind of keeps up a lot of global global economies. So, are are you happy with this Nobel Prize, Ruth? I am incredibly happy. It was a long time in the offing. I mean, she's also the first to win a Nobel Prize in economics, which is sort of my core subject that I study at uni. So, I'm incredibly delighted. I mean, we've seen over the last probably twenty years by now studies from financial services institutions actually including city around how relevant female participation in the workforce mm. is in terms of actually generating revenue and gdp and output so the world is slowly coming around to the fact that we women um, are playing a relevant role here and what of course if you look at some of the examples you know it's sort of not surprising but unfortunate for example uh, that people reward you know long service uninterrupted by children you know or that you have that phenomenon of greedy jobs that some people are you know willing and able to provide any hour and any of that night or day uh, to sacrifice for a job to get higher pay whilst uh, people that have parental duties can't do that and i personally speak as a single mom of two kids where i'm realizing after six weeks of summer holiday my actual job has started again and it's incredibly busy Mm, and i keep my head above water as the only bread earner in the family um so i know what i'm talking about and i think it's it was high time that this happened but incredibly well deserved and i do hope that this does really usher a, a new era in in terms of awareness and factoring this into the cultural change that we're trying to achieve with everything that we started with diversity and inclusion 20 years ago, which was initially primarily focused on more equitable outcomes for women. Uh, Of course, this has gone much broader, but we're still in a situation where women are underpaid, 
globally, even in this country, and where most of the work women do is often not even accounted for in any shape or form. Mm. And, uh, and that is really sad. So, yeah. I, I was very happy to read this. Thank you for including it. But it's also, I mean, I think I said this this morning at the, the Snowflake conference, there is not a more productive person on your team than the mother who has to get everything done before she goes yes. and leaves with a childminder um, <laughs> at the end of the day. So this idea that if you have children, you're not going to be productive is just a BS in my mind. Anyway, you want to have a comment down the day? No? <laughs> no. <laughs> thank you so much for joining. Ruth, thank you so much. We will definitely have you back. Um, thank you so much, everyone, for listening to The it Banker. It was a great pleasure. Yay. Thank you, Liz. The Banker yeah. Midweek. Thanks. Goodbye. Thank you for listening to The Banker Midweek, part of the portfolio of podcasts from the editorial team at The Banker, available on thebanker.com and wherever you get your podcast fix. Search on The Banker Podcasts to listen to more. <laughs>